Well, good morning. We are jumping into the Old Testament again. And so uh, we have just finished the book of John, the Gospel of John, and that was quite a whirlwind. That was like eight months. Uh, went a little longer than I thought, but that was awesome. Uh, it gave us all time to kind of probably reflect on it a little bit more. But as I like to do in this class, of course, um, and I like to remind people is that the New Testament really makes no sense without the Old Testament. And so what I want to do today is kind of talk about what we're going next, which is we're going to, we're going to go into First and Second Samuel, maybe First Samuel, we'll see how this goes, um, and kind of you know, regroup where we're at and, and what we're going to talk about and why we're going to talk about it. Now, as I said, the New Testament and the writers of the New Testament in the first century, Christianity is based on the Old Testament. It is based on Judaism, and its roots are from Judaism. And you can't really talk about Christianity without Judaism. So Judeo-Christianity is probably the best way to talk about our religion. Um, you know, when you're here on Sunday morning and you're, you're listening to Dan preach and you're singing hymns and, and, you're, and you're worshiping all of the roots of everything that we're talking about and singing about and worshiping about come from Judaism. And you can't talk about Judaism without the Holy Scriptures of Judaism. Now, what are the Holy Scriptures of Judaism? Well, that is a very good question, and it depends on who you ask. Now, today, in modern, what we would call rabbinical Judaism, which is kind of the Judaism of today, of the 21st century, <clears throat> the modern rabbinical Judaism focuses on the Hebrew Scriptures, what they call the authoritative Hebrew Scriptures. For a Jew today, the Bible is what you call the Old Testament. As a Christian, we call the Old Testament, they call the Bible. The Bible today, the Old Testament that you have, is largely based on a reconstruction of what is thought to have been the original Hebrew text, and there's a little Aramaic, which is a language that is different than Hebrew, but written in the same characters, that was reconstructed in the Middle Ages around 1000 AD, but what is thought to have been from the original, you know, writings that have been passed down over the centuries that came from much earlier, okay? Now, in the first century, if you were talking to people like Pharisees and Sadducees, and again, I think all of you have been here except for Corey, and I know you're listening online, so I know you're up to date on all of that. Uh, um, you have to remember that there was different thoughts about what the Bible was in the first century. To a Sadducee, how much of the, quote, Old Testament did they really believe in? The first five books. The first five books, which you would call what? We would call what? The Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, Penta meaning five. And they also call it the law, or the Torah, okay? They rejected all of the prophetic writings, which is really largely the, the bulk of what's left. And part of that is political, and part of it is spiritual. But for the most part, the Pharisees and, and the majority of Jews have, have, over the centuries, accepted the much larger collection of writings that, that we call the Tanakh, which is essentially the, the law, the prophets, and the writings, as their holy canon of scripture. The scripture that they say is divinely inspired, it is not with error, and that you can find truth from it. Now, like Christians, and like um, other uh, denominations today, that may not have been the whole story, and we're not gonna get into that today. There were other writings that sometimes were considered authoritative, were considered canon. If you were reading the Greek version of the Holy Scriptures, um, <clears throat> right around the time of Jesus' life, you would also include um, what we call today the Apocrypha, which is 
14 or 15 books, depending on how you count, of writings that were included in the Greek version of the Holy Bible called the Septuagint. Okay? Now, I'm throwing a lot at you, but my point here is this, that what we're going to talk about today is the history of what has happened to Israel after the period of what we call the Judges. And if you were with us last year, we went through the whole book of the Judges, and we're going to recap where we're at today, because a lot of what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks in regards to Samuel has a lot to do with Christianity and what will come out of it for Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, And we'll talk about that. Where are we at? We have our timeline of history here. And I've tried to break it up. And this is kind of a wide swath. So we're starting in 2000 BC. That's a long time ago, 4,000 years ago, folks. If you want to think about the Great Pyramids of Giza, they would have been built way back here in 2500 BC. So that's a long time ago. Okay. So even at the point we're going to talk about today, the period of Samuel, about 1,000 BC, the pyramids are already ancient history, <laughs> okay? Just kind of hard to wrap your mind around. The patriarch, who are the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right, and, and who were, what did they do? Why are they important? God chose Abraham, sorry. It's kind of where the beginning of the Hebrew religions was very good origin yeah exactly the fathers of kind of the religion of Israel the Israelite religion who Yahweh who we call Jehovah or God the father began to reveal himself to, to mankind to, to really reveal himself and who he was and establish covenants which are essentially contracts with humanity with a set of people that he chose out of all the people of the world, he chose the Israelites. And the Israelites mean the children of Israel, or in this case, uh, Jacob, okay? Um, <clears throat> Jacob the man was renamed Israel, which means wrestles with God or fights with God. God, the father, Yahweh, chose to pick this group of descendants from this man called Israel to be his, quote, chosen people to reveal himself through scripture. Is that my time? I'm up? That didn't feel like an hour. Sometimes I feel like I talk a lot. I was just trying to silence my phone and it dinged right It's ironical it how that worked. Well, I think that calls for a drink. <laughs> Mountain Dew. Five strong you know, I, don't, I ran out of tea this week, so we're going right for the full blast here. Uh, who knows how much I'll be talking at the end. <clears throat> So the people of Israel, this chosen race out of all the people of the world, maybe there's a few, maybe a few million people on earth, um, even back here, maybe, maybe a handful of a million of people, give or take on the earth at this time, but of all those people, God chooses this specific set of people to reveal himself to, to establish a covenant or covenants with, to establish laws. This is all the way back in about 2000 BC, we think, maybe around 19... 1900 BC, give or take. With that period, then, these people that we call the Israelites, or Hebrews, settle in, in Egypt. And we know this whole story about Moses, right? After a period of about 400 years, the people of Israel, who are living in Egypt, become oppressed by the government or rulers of Egypt and cry out to God for help. They deliver, or God delivers, basically a savior. His name is Moses to lead his people out of Egypt to what he calls, and we call, the Promised Land. A land that even way back here, in the time of Abraham, God said, I promise, Abraham, I'm gonna give your people land that is flowing with milk and honey, and it is, it is abundant in riches, 
and it will be a place where your people will settle, and I am giving it to you. Okay, that's a promise. Now, Abraham, in some ways, never really lived to see that. Um, Although him and his son Isaac lived and died in this region that we call today Israel. This is the modern state of Israel. In the period in history, you will always, almost always refer to it as Canaan because it is you know, the Canaanites, or in some cases Amorites are the people who live in this region. But this is the land, this weird spot of land, which is really the crossroads of civilizations. It's not overflowing with tropical plants. It's not overflowing with water. Um, it's kind of a harsh, rugged, especially the Judean hills here, rugged, mountainous, tough place to live. But in some ways, it's the perfect place for this people that we call the Israelites to settle and to grow and expand. And once Moses brings his people out of Egypt and they enter what is called the promised land, the 12 tribes that we call the descendants of of Jacob or Israel settle in these areas. And the tribes are named after the 12 sons to some degree of Jacob or Joseph. And I've written those tribe names, some of those tribe names here with these double lines under them, like Manasseh, Ephraim, Benjamin, Judah, okay? <clears throat> and the people settle there. And, they, and, 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 and where are we at? We are now in this period that we call the period of the judges. It's a long period, over 400 years. How old is America? You know, 200, 200 years and change. This is twice the length of time that America has even been a real country that the Israelites living as tribes, as a loose confederation of tribes, are, are sort of banding together, but sort of not, to, to continue their religion, to pass on what God has given to them way back here from Moses and the patriarchs, to, to establish this land as the land in which they were given. And remember, when Moses comes here, he's not the one that enters. Who is the one who leads the Israelites into the promised land proper? Joshua. 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 Um, Joshua and Caleb, the only two, we think, people who survived from Egypt to have entered the promised land and settled there. And Joshua is their military commander and spiritual commander. And from that period on, the people have what is essentially these kind of anointed men, in one case a woman, Deborah, who lead the nation. And when I say the nation, folks, that is the most loosest term I could possibly give. It it is a collection of tribes. These judges who are appointed by God, who have this kind of, this mix. They They are in some cases military, in many cases military leaders. They are almost always in a sense, a priest or a prophet, this idea of they are, they are communing with God and they are trying to <clears throat> do the will of God and tell the will of God to the people. And they're also leaders in the sense they're not true kings, but they're in charge. And one only have to look to someone like Deborah to see that Deborah was in charge. She was the commander of all of these confederation of tribes at the time. But this is really important. This is really important. Now, as we read the book of Judges, there was a common theme that kind of came back every time you read about a judge, except for Deborah and one other judge, a common theme that happened here. And what, what was that common theme, if you remember back? There's no wrong answers. <laughs> Just try. There's kind of like a rise yeah. and then a decline okay. with each judge. Like okay. they start, they follow God, and then things go. 
South. That's it. Quick. Okay, so you've got it. You, you're onto it. That is, the people as a group tend to rally behind a leader who we call a judge, usually in response to a, a, a pagan Canaanite tribe burning their fields or killing their people or attacking their cities. So the people would cry out to God and say, we repent, we were wrong, we have been doing pagan practices, we have not been following the law, we have not been passing on our history to our children. And God would say, okay, I will relent. I will raise up for you a judge who will save you. And essentially, most of the time, this was a military action. A judge would be raised, an army would, would be uh, aggregated, and they would drive out the Canaanite, pagan Canaanites from their, their land. Now what happens? Everyone's happy for about a generation until the next generation comes along and then what happens? Start to forget and start to do it over again. It all falls apart. It, isn't that something? That even 4,000 years later, Angela, we're still in the same spot. You know, you think you figured it all out and you think you're on the right path. 20 years later, it all goes to blank, <laughs> right? Why? Because the new people come up and they didn't see the fighting. And they didn't see the hardship. They're living in luxury. They've got plenty of food. Their town is secure. They're safe. Why should they worry? So instead of following God and continuing to worship Yahweh and follow his commandments and his law, they start doing their own thing. They stop worshiping. They start following these Canaanite pagan gods, which are horrible, horrible gods. They might sacrifice their children in, in burning flame to Molech. Um, they might have very, very nasty sexual practices um, with each other um, that involves all kinds of horrible uh, human activity. And God looks at them and says, you're, you, I gave you what you wanted and now you're going astray. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> sound like anything uh, familiar to, to the modern time? And when that happens then, you have about a generation of people crying out and suffering. And then they realize because someone says, you're doing this all wrong. You're not following God and his practices. And the people repent. They give up their detestable practices. They go back to following Yahweh. And, and Yahweh says, I will relent. And I will raise up another judge. This goes on and on and on for 400 years. Okay. And a sociology teacher talk about that. And they called it the moral pendulum. Oh, and you know, yeah. people in class, I mean, this was 20 years ago, like were talking about how... Um, how you know our country was getting bad and things were getting worse and he, yeah. he talked about the moral pendulum and how whole nations would go down and then and then it would seem like everybody got more moral and then it would happen again <clears throat> and that it just repeats itself throughout history how many of you took history in, in school how many of you had history class at any point in your education <laughs> Let's see. The Israelites, Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Western Europeans, now America. Now, how many times do we have to do this, folks? How many times do we have to do this? A society struggling for freedom and for righteousness cries out to God. God saves them, and through their opulence and their wealth, and their, their peace and security fall away <clears throat> like dust. And again, the cycle repeats itself. Well, maybe this makes you feel better. Maybe it makes you feel horrible. People were no different 4,000 years ago as they are today. And what we'll find during the period of the judges is a period in which this cycle of going over and over and over again starts to really wear on people. Now, the author of 
judges, who we're not really sure who that was. <clears throat> Seems to put this book together, the book of Judges together, to make a very strong case. Without a king, you people are going to continue to do this crap for the rest of eternity. And things are probably never going to get better. They're going to continue to decline. The author of Judges makes a very clear case. And in fact, if you even read the book of Judges at the end, it said, in those days, Israel had no king. And essentially, society was collapsing. And every man did what he wanted to do. Now, that's a very strong and condemning statement that you will now see continued into what we call 1 Samuel. Now, a real quick note about Samuel. This is a good one, again, and I made that comment at the beginning about what Bible you use. Well, if you use the Septuagint or any ancient Bible, there was no such thing as First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Um, they were all lumped together into one book, um, or in a couple of books called Kingdoms, the Book of Kingdoms. First Samuel through Second Kings recounts what is called essentially the Deuteronomic history. I'm throwing a lot at you. You don't have to remember all of this. But they seem to have a common theme. 1 Samuel to 2 Kings is essentially the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. The kings that will rule in this region here over the next several hundred years. But the author who is writing for Samuel, and we don't know who that is, it may, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, it's clear that the author here is making a case that, at least in Samuel, in the first couple of books of Samuel, a king is good. A king is great. But there are rules about God saying you can have a king. Now remember, God kind of hems and haws about letting Israel have a king in the beginning. And that's why they didn't have a king from the moment that they walked in. And Moses wasn't made a king. And Joshua wasn't made a king. God says, who is the, who is the king to all of you? I'm the king. Not me, Brian. Yahweh is the king. <clears throat> Yahweh is the king. If you follow me and you listen to my word that is passed down through the prophets and the priests <clears throat> that I have picked out for you, you have nothing to worry about. Follow my law, which Moses wrote down for you and you should be telling each other about, then you don't need a king. What, what happens? How well does that go for the people? They still want one. They still want one. Why do they want one? They need someone to follow, they think. Okay. I think they're looking around and they're seeing other places and <coughs> countries having kings. And it's like, hey, they've got kings. We need a king. You're all, you're all right. This is exactly right. Think about this. In the period here, now what we call this period is the Late Bronze Age. Okay? Again, big historical words, but essentially this period is defined by great kingdoms of the era. The Mycenaeans are the first great Greek kingdom that we have. And they're a tyrannical culture. They're not like the Greeks that will come a few hundred years later during the classical period. These are people with a king who is a strong centralized monarchy. Remember, this is the whole key here. Instead of loose confederations of tribes, what you start to see in the late Bronze Age is a single, powerful, totally powerful king who rules everything and a very centralized bureaucracy where all the important decisions of the, of the country come through the king. Agriculture, war, um, colonies and colonization, um, trade with other countries, all get centralized under a single ruler and, his, and essentially his, uh, his uh, staff. You have the Mycenaeans, 
you have the um, Anatolians, um, the Hittites, and you have, of course, Egypt. Okay? Now all, and, and, and Steve is absolutely right. So you're, you're these people here in this loose confederation of tribes who happen to be the highway of civilization. All the peoples I just mentioned come marching through your territory day by day, going back and forth to visit the other kingdoms. Okay? You're squeezed in, you've got these huge kingdoms around you. Now how are those kingdoms functioning right now in the late Bronze Age? Are things, are things terrible for those kingdoms? Probably no, right? They're great. Things are great. In fact, it's argued that society was never as wealthy ever in history until the late Bronze Age. That was the wealthiest the human, the human uh, species ever was. People had plenty to eat. They had plenty to trade with. They had plenty of money. Um, they had security and stability. Um, everyone kind of stayed in their area. And while there was skirmishes here and there and, and battles fought, in, in general, there was a lot of stability. <clears throat> what do you think they're doing? They're looking around like, dude, we want that. What do we have? We have, <laughs> we have chaos. We have religious, social, and, and, and um, uh, authoritative chaos in our, in our country. We have this loose confederation of people. We can't even drive out the people who are in our country to make them Israelite, much less get along with each other. So the authors of, ju of Judges and of the books of First and Second Samuel start to make the case, we need a king. We need a king because then we'll be like everyone else. Everything will be great. And, and in the beginning, the author of Samuel is making the case that that's not going to be just any king. Who is it going to be? Jesus. God appointed. It's going to be a God. Let's talk about that. You're, you're eventually right. It's a, it's, a, it's a person appointed by God or anointed. If you are a Hebrew or an Israelite, guess what? You use a very specific term for who you pick as king. It's called the anointed one. Who, what is our term for the anointed one today? Isn't it Starts with an M. Messiah. Messiah. This is it, folks. This is it. Okay? So, focus on a, what we call a Messiah. Messiah, <coughs> Mishayak, in the Hebrew, is anointed one. What does to anoint someone mean in the, in the Israelic sense? Cover them. Cover them. Cover them in what? Oil. Yeah. You'll take oil, which is holy and blessed and pure, and a man who God has ordained, a man, will kneel before you and the priest or prophet will pour this anointed oil on him. That becomes the anointed one. In Greek, chreo, um, Christos, means the anointed one. Why? Because chreo means to pour fat or oil on someone. That's where we get the word Christ, for Jesus Christ. It means the anointed one. But in the Old Testament, it means a king, a human being who's a king. So that's the first one. The second thing that this author is going to say is it's not just any person can be king. We're going to make the point here. Someone very specific is going to be him and his descendants will be the only true kings of this nation. And who is that? And I'm pointing to it, right? It's King David. So there's a lot that this author is going to try and tell you, which is, of course, biblical. Of course, we, we consider it authoritative. The other thing it's going to lead to here, and I didn't write it down here, is one more really important thing. So we have here this establishment of an Israeli monarchy. And it's going to be a centralized bureaucracy that pulls all of these tribes together. The second is the establishment of the Davidic line of rulers. 
going to establish the rules of the monarchy. This is really important. It's going to establish that, look, it's not just a king who's going to do whatever he wants. Who does the king report to? And remember, uh, you know, Steve made the comment, well, look around us at all the kings of all these places around us. Those kings, especially in Egypt, tended to be <coughs> considered what? Not just a king, but a what? God. A god. Yes, yes. <coughs> this is so important, folks. This is so important. God's going to say, fine, I'll give you a king. But guess what? Guess who he reports to? The real king. The rules are who I anoint from the line of David can rule as your king, as your anointed one, also called the son of God. Remember, too, that I make a big deal of this. The word Mishayak or Messiah is rarely used in the Old Testament. It will happen here in Samuel, and we'll read it in a minute. But in general, the, the term for the king is really called something else. It's called the son of God. He's the son of God. And only later does it become, in our sense, to be known as the, the biological or spiritual son of God, as we call Jesus. In the Old Testament, it refers to a man who is essentially after God's own heart. A human being who is anointed to carry out the will of God. And, we, and, and it's much more common in the Old Testament to call that person a son of God. But he is not God. This is going to cause so much problems with the Israelites. Why? Because what do we know? After just a couple generations of a united monarchy, what happens? Less than united. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> All falls apart. I think they, I think they forget the cycle of human in general. Yep. I mean, we we go through suffering. We learn the lessons we need to learn. We become, you know, better characters. We become, yep. you know, more. I don't know, closer followers of God because of the strife we go through by following kings that maybe mm -hmm. haven't gone through some of that strife. Those mm -hmm. kings are now not following God. They're not making the good choices. And that's where they kept falling because the kings were falling because the kings didn't learn the lessons. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the same pendulum. <laughs> it's Back just now forth, that the king smack. is taking the whole kingdom with them. That's it. It's not an individual choice. <laughs> Look, folks, this isn't, this isn't without its cost, right? The king is in charge of everything. And when that goes south, everything goes south. Mm -hmm. The last thing I want to talk, and I, and I think is really important here, is you're going to see that this author is going to make a huge case for centralized temple worship. Now, remember I talked about the Sadducees. That will come along much later, um, during the Hasmonean period, late after the exile, and will continue right up until the destruction of the temple in 70. The Sadducees were all about central temple worship. That's the only place you could worship and do your sacrifice for Yahweh. Okay. Well, what's the problem with that? <laughs> Even by this period, what's the problem with that? Not everybody lived right by in the temple. Yes. And in fact, we have Jews in Jesus' era that are they're way far away. Alexandria, Egypt, is hundreds of miles away. Those people, if they're lucky, may have made it to Jerusalem once in their life. You have people spread throughout the Mediterranean now, Jews. We call it the diaspora. The Babylonian exile spread and scattered the Jews all over. It's a lot harder now to have the central worship, but a lot of people still clung to this idea that, that they only wanted to worship in the temple. Today's rabbinic Judaism is based on there is no central temple. Why? They live in different countries. Well, why else? Where do I go? <laughs> There's no temple. <clears throat> there hasn't been a temple for 2,000 years, folks. 
But here, in this period, the author wants to make the case that you can't just worship or sacrifice wherever you are. You have to come. There has to be a centralized bureaucracy around the priests as well. And where does that end up being established? Eventually in Jerusalem, but right now it's in Shiloh, right? Where is Jerusalem on this map? It's Jesus. So this is the point. So I made the, the names common to the era. And you're like, well, you drew this star and it says Jabus. You said the, the Sea of Chinneroth, the great what? Brian, you don't know your history. <laughs> Actually, this is what you would have called it in the era. Jabus is a town occupied by the Jebusites. There aren't Israelites there. It will come to be known as, as Jerusalem. And this is what the author is going to say, that we need a central place, a temple, a physical temple. Why, why a physical temple? At the period of the judges, where is this kind of centralized worship going on? Is it in a physical temple made of stone and gold? It's in the tabernacle. It's a tent. A tabernacle is another word for a tent. A tent? How many people have camped in a tent? Okay. I don't know about you. I don't know how... Look, there are some really nice tents in the world. Um, uh, my brother-in-law just bought, I guess, the Rolls-Royce of tents. It can fit like 100 people. I don't know. But, uh, but, but how nice is a tent and how stable and, and, and long-lasting is a tent? It's not, right? It's pretty efficient, though, if you're a nomadic. That's it. Why was it a tent? Because for 40 years, they had to pick it up and move it and go to the next spot in the desert. And it might surprise you to know that once the Israelites come into the Promised Land... As, as Laura says, they plant the pegs of that tent in a place called Shiloh, and that is referred to in Joshua 18.1. And there it stays for 300 years. Now, I don't know about you either. I don't know about how great tents are in antiquity. Pretty shabby. I, I wouldn't think that this is, you know, the kind of thing that could last. I wonder if they place a bunch of parts. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? But it's also another yeah. way that God wanted them set apart. Yes. He, even like when David says, I want to build you a temple, God's like, why do I need a temple? Yep. Like, you know, he yep. wanted to be different than, yeah. but all they want to do is be like everybody else. They're like, well, this king comes and conquers us. And if we had a king, then maybe we could go conquer other people. They don't like the way God's running it. I think all through history and even now, most of it comes down to lack of faith. Mm. I mean, we know God's everywhere. I mean, he's not just in the temple, but, you know, they needed that tent to, to show up God was with them. Now they need this big temple to, to show everybody else that God is with them. I mean, it's all, it really comes down to lack of faith more than anything else. They didn't trust that God was the king without people seeing their king, so they wanted a king everybody else could see, too. What was the function of the temple? Oh, I'm sorry, what was the function of the tent? of meeting, or what we call the tabernacle. What was its function? Worship. Sacrifice. Worship. Sacrifice. All the religious practices, but what did it represent to the Israelites as a whole? What was so special about that place? Yes, this is really important, and Lori has hit it right on the head. According to the Hebrews, or the Israelites, and is written in our Old Testament, the tent of meeting housed the presence of God. This was the meeting place where God came down from heaven, if you want to think of it that way, and he interfaced with human beings on earth. 
How many places on earth, according to the Old Testament, did that happen? There was the mountains, definitely, and then Moses got the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just one and at a time. The, and, and the ten. I mean, literally, that was the only place. This is it. This well, is a no, big there one. there was the burning bush. There was... This is what we're getting at. And Ken, is, Ken has got it. It's one at a time. It's one, there, I, will, I will meet you in one place. Okay? Now, that, for us, is very different because we have the Holy Spirit living with all of us. It's all different now. Every one of you who calls yourself a saved Christian has the Spirit of God living within him or her. And maybe that's a mind blower for you, but that's the truth. Back then, God lived in one place. Again, how different is that from all of the neighbors? How different is that from the neighbors? Anybody could erect a temple or a shrine and you could worship your God in your house or wherever you, you know, different towns would be like, oh, we're going to have you know, this God is our patron, and they build a temple to that God, but another city could say, oh, well, we take that God as our patron, and they yeah. could build the same, another temple to the same God. They, just, they carried him with, carried their God yeah. with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we have a story of that from the, from the patriarchs, where, I think it was Rachel, took the household God with her. So they, I'm gonna, you know, they have all these pagan gods, and they're idols made of wood and stone and, and clay and whatever else, and they would, you know, tuck it in their coat, and they would take it with them. Um, and it can travel. And, and if you're an Egyptian and you worship this god called Amun, the formless one, right? He's everywhere, right? He could be, he could be uh, worshipped on a mountain. He could be worshipped in the Nile, what have you. God is making the point, I am one god. So that's a huge one. Monotheism. That's totally different than their neighbors. Everyone around them worship many gods. There's one god, and I'm only going to come to one place. One place. And in the Old Testament, that is, at the beginning, the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle. We have this crazy thing called the Ark. Now, luckily for you, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, or heard of what, Indiana Jones. <laughs> Maybe you've never even heard of the Ark before that movie. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> is it a big deal in the Old Testament? Uh, kind of. It's not talked about in every single chapter. But the Ark was essentially the footstool of God. This was the interface where God would sit on his heavenly throne and put his feet on the earth. And where would his feet rest? On the Ark of the Covenant. And in that Ark, it's not a mistake, contained the law written by Moses, the, the rules by which this society should function. Now, we have this tent. It's sitting in Shiloh. It sits there for 300 years. Okay. Now, as we'll read in Samuel, it's not going to last. And there's some great stories that happen in here. I make a big point in this class, and we will get to the scripture. <laughs> You know, I'm talking a lot. We do this in the intro. We talk about the fact that every book and letter in your, in your Bible has been edited. Now, I'm sorry if that upsets you. There is probably, I will guarantee it, there is not a single writing in the, in the Old or New Testaments that was only written by one person. Now, you can throw tomatoes at me. You can choose not to believe that. Um, but it's the truth. 1 Samuel is probably no different. In fact, when you look at it, you look at the language of, of how it's written. First, it's, it's anonymous. And in general, books that are anonymous tend to be written by multiple people. Now, that doesn't make them wrong. There's nothing wrong with saying Moses composed much of the law, the first five books, but someone came along and edited them later. Look, he wrote about his own death. I don't think so. <laughs> On Mount Nebo? No, someone else wrote that. Um, in the book of Samuel, you read about the death of Samuel. And it's pretty you know, close to the beginning. While Samuel didn't write all four books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. 
because ha most of what happens happens after his life. <clears throat> but that's okay. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means that they were composed over time. In fact, I, I would bet in the period of the United Monarchy, very little of this was actually written in one place where you could go and find all of the stuff that came before Samuel. <clears throat> what you probably had were collections of writings that were shared amongst the different tribes. <clears throat> and only later, we think, after the Babylonian exile, did the Jews realize they can't have all this stuff floating around. They have to have some authoritative single source for their canon. And all of it was put together <clears throat> into the form you have today as the Old Testament. <clears throat> we can see clearly the pieces that probably came together to make what we call First and Second Samuel today. We have this kind of pre-Davidic arc narrative. This is where it's stolen. This is a great, it's a heist. It's a heist story, right? The ark is stolen by the Philistines and they go and get it. You have the story of Samuel and how he's raised to be the last judge of Israel. You have this section on the rights of kings again. The content is different, the language is different, probably written by different people who later, it was, it was sewn together into a single narrative, which is totally fine, um, and, and, and kind of put all together like a puzzle. And then finally you have the story of Saul, which is an interesting, <laughs> we're going to get into that, that's very interesting. And finally the story of Saul and David, and how David finally becomes the anointed king of Israel. <clears throat> With all that being said, any questions before we actually read? The scripture. All right, let's go ahead and we're going to jump right in. And I would like a volunteer, please, to read. And we're going to read the entire first chapter, which is verses 1 to 28. Who would like to read that for me? I can do it for you. Thank you. Okay. There was a name. Okay, what, this is, how do you pronounce his name? So that I. Elkanah? Oh. Elkanah? I just say, I say Elkanah and Elkanah. Hannah. All right, all right. There was a man named Elkanah, son of Jehoram, from Ramathaim in the mountains of Ephraim. Elkanah, Elkanah was from the family of Ziph. Jehoram was Elihu's son, and Elihu was Tohu's son, and Tohu was the son of Ziph from the family group of Ephraim. I would just get to pause. <laughs> Look, I know this is hard. Look, if you're starting to read the Bible for the first time, you crack open the good book and the old parts, I can see how this would be overwhelming. My, my advice to you is this. Skim over the names. Just call it Z and H and E, right? Don't let that be a barrier to reading this. Okay, go ahead. Elkanah had two wives named Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. So every year, Elkanah left his town of Ramah and went up to Shiloh to worship the Lord all-powerful and to offer sacrifices to him. Shiloh was where Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, served as priests of the Lord. When Elkanah offered sacrifices, he always gave a share of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to her sons and daughters. But Elkanah always gave a special share of the meat to Hannah because he loved Hannah and because the Lord had kept her from having children. Peninnah would tease, tease Hannah and upset her because the Lord had made her unable to have children. This happened every year when they went up to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Peninnah would upset Hannah until Hannah wouldn't cry and not eat anything. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you crying and why won't you eat? Why are you sad? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once after they had eaten their meal in Shiloh, Hannah got up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair near the entrance to the Lord's house. Hannah was so sad that she cried and prayed to the Lord. She made a promise, saying, Lord all-powerful, see how sad I am. 
Remember me and don't forget me. If you will give me a son, I will give, you, give him back to you all his life and no one will ever cut his hair with a razor. While Hannah kept praying, Eli watched her mouth. She was praying in her heart, so her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, Stop getting drunk. Throw away your wine. Hannah answered, No, sir. I have not drunk any wine or beer. I am a deeply troubled woman, and I was telling the Lord about all my problems. Don't think I am an evil woman. I have been praying because I have many troubles and very sad. Eli answered, Go. I wish you well. May the Lord God of Israel give you what you asked of him. Hannah said, May I always please you. Then she left and ate something, and she was not sad anymore. Early the next morning, Elkanah's family got up and worshipped the Lord. Then they went back home to Ramah. Elkanah had sexual relations with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So Hannah became pregnant, and in time she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, His name is Samuel because I asked the Lord for him. Every year, Elkanah went with his whole family to Shiloh to offer sacrifices and to keep the promise he had made to God. But one time, Hannah did not go with him. She told him, When the boy is old enough to eat solid food, I will take him to Shiloh. Then I will give him to the Lord, and he will always live there. Elkanah, Hannah's husband, said to her, Do what you think is best. You may stay home until the boy is old enough to eat. May the Lord do what you have said. So Hannah stayed at home to nurse her son until he was old enough to eat. When, Hannah was, or when Samuel was old enough to eat, Hannah took him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, along with a three-year-old bull, one half bushel of flour, and a leather bag filled with wine. After they had killed the bull for the sacrifice, Hannah brought Samuel to Eli. She said to Eli, As sure as you live, sir, I am the same woman who stood near you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord answered my prayer and gave him to me. Now I give him back to the Lord. He will belong to the Lord all his life. And he worshiped the Lord then. Awesome. Thank you. Reactions? <clears throat> Seems crazy. She wanted a child so bad, and then, and then she gave him away. <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of counterintuitive. I think it was more about being able to have a child and proving that she wasn't less of a woman than you know, her husband's other wife. Like she felt like she was less of a person because she hadn't been able to have a child. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. What kind of vow does that sound like? A monk almost. Say it again. A monk almost. What, do you, like what would you call a monk, a Hebrew monk in those days who took a vow? of purity. Nazarite. Nazarite. Where have we heard that before? Samson. Yes. The where? Yes. Samson. Oh, yeah. Who was Samson? What kind of person was he? A Nazarite. And what else? A judge. A judge. <coughs> a judge. What else do you take? There's so much here that you could point out if you wanted to. What, what else do you get from this? Maybe it seems weird. There's, there's a sense of pity that Elkanah had for Hannah. Given, I mean, the, the other gal had two, two sons, but, she, but he gave her double portion instead of, like, what did she do with that? Mm -hmm. Except for just receive it that he was trying to make up for something or felt bad for her. What does this suggest to you? Hannah is mentioned first, and she gets a double portion now. Um, you say, you'll look at this and say, why did he have two wives? Well, it was not encouraged, but it was, it was okay, according to the Mosaic law, that in certain circumstances you could take. And why would a person take two wives typically in antiquity? 
what makes it sound like he married Hannah first. Yes. She couldn't have children. Yes. Then he marries Penina and, so that he can have off, like descendants. That's it. But then that makes it when he's like, aren't I worth more to you than, than sons or whatever? I'm like, um, then you shouldn't have married Penina. That's it. So much, so, dude. It's like, what do you care about? Like, I'm yep. like, you made this mess and now you don't want to have to deal with it. So. Now keep in mind, you know, the cultural piece here is this. Who did um, Elkanah come from? Who was Elkanah? Was he from an aristocratic class? Just reading what we have here in 1 Samuel, what kind of person was he? Well, he was faithful to the hill God. country. So. <laughs> He's a hillbilly. He's a hillbilly. <laughs> he is a commoner, dude. He is not from the, a wealthy class. He doesn't have a bunch of wealthy relatives. If he doesn't have sons to take over the ox carting and the grain grinding, who the heck is going to do that? It's not going to be Hannah. That's it. Yeah. It's not going to be a woman. Everything falls apart, and his and his wives and and, and you know their their children will be destitute. They will be destitute. So while we look down upon him in our current cultural way of saying, "Why did you go out and marry this other woman?" In some ways, it was survival, folks, and I'm not making an excuse for it. I'm just the deliverer of the information. But in some ways, it was survival. You are very lucky to live in the United States of America in the 21st century. You literally have everything you could possibly want and, and a future that is secure. How many of you have a job with a, a 401k? How many of you have uh -huh, the hope that you'll get Social Security <laughs> one day, right? And Dude. Snapchat. Thank you. Snapchat. I don't even know what that means, but I think it's <laughs> You know, we look at uh, the Hannah leaving Samuel and taking him. You know, he's probably what three years old or a toddler of some sort. You know, we think of her giving him up, but she's really returning him to God because he's around because solely as the result of her prayer to God. So mm -hmm. it it wasn't hers to give up. I mean, he was always God's. What does that remind you of? Think bigger, much bigger. Think of that. Jesus. You will find many allusions to Samuel being a Christ-like figure in this book. <clears throat> now, he's not perfect, and I'm not going to make it sound like he is like Christ. When we get into Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, that's going to sound a lot like the Magnificat that Mary prays in Luke about thanking God for giving her a son and how great she is for having an anointed child. In fact, that's going to be the first reference to the anointed one in the Old Testament. What else do you guys take from this? There's a lot of stuff in here. What do you notice about verse 12? I think this is something that happens a lot in the Bible, and you might read right over it and not realize how important that is. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Can God hear your thoughts? You don't have to pray out loud, folks. <clears throat> How awesome is that? That's it's scary, too. That's, that's funny. That's the first thing I was thinking, too. Is, so here's the whole pray to yourself mm -hmm. example. shows how disconnected he was too yeah yeah because yeah. like later on we'll find out that his sons were like 
actually evil, yep. not just bad, you know? No. So, you know, she's sitting inside worrying about her praying fervently to the Lord instead of mm -hmm. worrying about his own family. I mean, and that he jumps right to the conclusion. I mean, he could have said like, hey, you know, my daughter, what is going on or anything, you know? But he decides to condemn her first. Isn't that, who does that sound like? Us, <laughs> right? Jump to conclusions, Matt. That's us, dude. <clears throat> Maybe she had a track record of drinking and okay. being drunk. Yeah. It says they got done eating and drinking, so. I've heard, I can't prove it, but they used to use their ephod to, apparently they used to look down at the stones and, you know, they would glimmer and they would represent certain letters. Apparently the letter for drunkenness, spelling for drunkenness is very close to some other word that I can't recall right now but that he might have misread his ephod thinking okay. that she was drunk. But it was actually, and then she corrects him. But, and then later she makes a, a cotton ephod for Sam. <coughs> ah. I forgot my amplifier. Didn't you say that um, you, uh, God knows our <coughs> thoughts? Sure does. Is that what you said? Yes. That, that was proved to me. I didn't need that. I wasn't, you know, not thinking of that, but one time uh, I was going to uh, worship. It was on a weeknight. It was either Sunday night or Wednesday night. I don't know which. Anyway, it was summer, <coughs> and I always, they would pick me at the driveway where I lived. It was real narrow, so I'd go across the street on 42nd and uh, Ingersoll, or 42nd and uh, University and to the coffee shop and they'd pick me up there in the parking lot, you know, and to make it easier for them to get in and out. And uh, so I always bought a cup of coffee. The cheapest thing I could buy was a little cup of coffee, $1.27. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't need the coffee. I was, you know, I had plenty of coffee at home, but I didn't want to sit at their table without buying something, even outside table. So. I uh, was living on the third floor where I lived, and I knew I had a dollar, but I didn't have the 27 cents, and I'd stop in there once in a while. If I stopped in there, Arrow, we'd get a cookie. But if I was in there by myself, cup of coffee, but usually not much. Anyway, I was just going to ask him, could I sit there and wait for my ride, with, you know, not buy coffee, not buy anything. Anyway, so come down three flights of stairs, and some of it carpeted, and some of it not. Sit down at the kitchen table, no cushions, nothing, just to, to rest a second before I walked across the street. And I got up from that chair and I heard coins drop. And I looked and there was 27 cents on the floor. And I picked it up and I bought the coffee. But nobody knew that. Nobody was home that night, me. Nobody knew that I didn't have that. God was the only one that knew. I love that story, Lorna. That is, that is an awesome, I have this pair of really expensive jeans I can't afford, I wanna to go to the Lucky Store. I'm taking you with me. And I'm hoping <laughs> some change, but they have to cost 27 cents. <laughs> there was other times when I didn't have enough, but that's awesome. that that's one great. time I, I, I just couldn't, you know, pennies from heaven. Mm -hmm. That's awesome, girl, that's great. I love that story. <laughs> Just be glad I reached to a 
fish's mouth to get it. That's it. I was thinking that too. <laughs> he made it easy on you. You didn't have to go get the fish with the coins in their mouth. Um, I want to go ahead and read chapter 2, and I think what we're going to do with the Old Testament stuff is it tends to be a lot longer than the New Testament. I'm going to try and do two chapters a week. It's important to kind of, you know, I mentioned this, the Hannah's Prayer. I want to go through that. Let's read chapter 2, and uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we break it up just to make it easy on you. Well, I don't know. I don't want to be easy on you. Let's do 36. Who would like to read 1 through 36 for chapter 2? Thanks, buddy. There we go. <laughs> a lot of reading. <clears throat> okay. Hannah's prayer. Then Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have the answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Stop acting so proud and haughty. Don't speak with such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows what you have done. He will judge your actions. The bow of the mighty is now broken, and those who stumbled are now strong. Those who were well fed are now starving, and those who were starving are now full. The childless woman now has seven children, and the woman with many children wastes away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and some others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, placing them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's, and he has set the world in order. He will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. No one will succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king and he increases the strength of his anointed one. Then Elkanah returned home to Ramah without Samuel, and the boy served the Lord by assisting Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. Whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, Eli's sons would send over a servant with a three-pronged fork. While the meat of the sacrificed animal was still boiling, the servant would stick the fork into the pot and demand whatever it brought up be given to Eli's sons. All the Israelites who came to worship at Shiloh were treated this way. Sometimes a servant would come even before the animal's fat had been burned on the altar. He would demand raw meat before it had been boiled so that it could be used for roasting. The man offering the sacrifice might reply, take as much as you want, but the fat must be burned first. Then the servant would demand, No, give it to me now, or I'll take it by force. So the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. But Samuel, though he was only a boy, served the Lord. He wore a linen garment like that of a priest. Each year his mother made a small coat for him and brought it to him when she came up with her husband for the sacrifice. Before they returned home, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you other children to take to the place of this one she gave to the Lord. And the Lord blessed Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. 
He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Eli said to them, I have been, bearing, I have been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you are doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. If someone sins against another person, God can, God can mediate for the guilty party. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can mediate? But Eli's sons would, wouldn't listen to their father, for the Lord was already planning to put them to death. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew taller and grew in favor with the Lord and with the people. One day a man of God came to Eli and gave him the message from the Lord, I revealed myself to your ancestors when they were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. I chose your ancestor Aaron from among all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense and to wear the priestly vest as he served me. And I assigned the sacrificial offerings to you, to your priests. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I promise that your branch of the tribe of Levi would always be my priest, but I will honor those who honor me, and I will despise those who think lightly of me. The time is coming when I will put an end to your family, so it will be no longer serve as my priest. All the members of your family will die before their time. None will teach, oh, none will reach old age. You will watch with envy as I pour out prosperity on <clears throat> the people of Israel, but no members of your family will ever live out their days. The few not cut off from serving at my altar will survive, but only so their eyes can go blind and their hearts break and their children will die a violent death. And to prove what, <clears throat> and to prove that what I have said will come true, I will cause your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. I will establish his family and they will be my priests and anointed kings forever. Then all of your surviving family will bow before him, begging for money and food. Please, they will say, give us jobs among the priests so we will have enough to eat. You did awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thoughts? They didn't like boiled meat. They wanted to roast it. <laughs> <laughs> who did, right? Who, who likes boiled meat, right? I don't know. I found it interesting that they... These are the laws that they'd asked for that they then decided, yeah, I'm better than that. I don't need that law. And thank God that he doesn't still operate this this way. You want to act like that? I mean, I'm going to kill your kids on the same day and all that stuff. I think um, priests were always held to a higher standard. And nowadays... Because it's not as in our face, people don't think about that. But it, it comes, I mean, teachers and, and leaders in the church still come with the same importance and consequences that they did back then. It's just that we're not seeing it as in our face as we did back then. I mean, it's still the Bible's clear that they're going to be judged more harshly. I mean, I almost, back then at least, they knew exactly what they were getting. <laughs> That is one way to look at it. 
That is one we look Seems at. Seems to be a little tension still between Hannah and Canina. three sons and two daughters because mm -hmm. it, it says yeah and the boy Samuel grew before the Lord so what mm -hmm. you know how did she treat those kids mm -hmm. like they weren't the, the I don't know the promised mm -hmm. ones so what what is what does the inclusion of, of, of the daughters tell you about why they're saying all of that how important were daughters in the Old Testament Not very important. Not, not, not important. And so the fact the author has included the fact that she had five more kids <clears throat> seems to speak to this point that it was, it was more about that God continued to bless her in the number of kids, but their kids are not really going to be, you know, it wasn't, she had three sons and they were named this, this, and this, and they each became a ruler of that, that, and that. It was, and she had five more kids, bringing the total to six. It's not seven. Some people interpret that a certain way. Um, but I think it's interesting. It generally tends to, you don't include the number of daughters. We don't know how many sisters Jesus had. We know he had them, plural. The New Testament does not record how many he had. <clears throat> I think it's interesting that, like, um, Eli raised, you know, Phineas and whatever his name is. But... Um, and basically, he wrote, raised Samuel. I mean, yeah. Samuel, his mother and father came once a year to see him. So they're not raising him. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting how the Lord, you know, he obeyed the Lord. Yeah. Whereas, you know, his others. So mm -hmm. I, don't know, I just find it interesting, like, what part of it is, like, you're teaching? What part of it is God just kind of choosing you? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe because it wasn't his own <clears throat> children, he didn't feel as... I want to make a point, though, about what's happening at the at the tabernacle at this point. Can you read again? I'm just curious. I seem to have heard you say something in verse 22. Can you read verse 22 again for me, if you can find it? Yeah, no, Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Okay, good. Okay, so I, I think I heard something different. Yes, if you ask 10 different scholars what the blank those women were doing at the door of the tabernacle, you will get 10 very fervently different responses. Um, many people are interpreting this as what you would expect at the, at the door of a temple in antiquity, what was going on there? Who were the kind of people you could pick up at the door of a temple? There is a suggestion that we already know the evidence is that Eli's sons are wicked. 
there is a corruption of the Israelite religious practices here. There is, there is the overt corruption where they were taking whatever food they wanted. According to the law, they weren't allowed to do that. There were very specific guidelines by which they could pick food that was being offered as a sacrifice to God. Um, they were taking whatever they wanted. That was a clear violation of the law. <clears throat> this fact that, and this also appears in Exodus and, um, <clears throat> uh, and in Deuteronomy, what were those women doing at the, at the door? You can presume, and some people have, that the cult, I'm just going to say it, the, the, the prostitution cults were starting to become more and more apparent here. This was happening here in the time of the judges. We know that was happening. This is at the tabernacle, folks. This is at the door to the tent of meeting where God was residing. And you better believe God was getting really ticked off about this. We know this will happen later when the temple is built. There are plenty of references. Once the temple is actually built in Jerusalem, of Baal worship going on in the temple, of, of cults to other pagan Canaanite gods going on in the temple of God. <clears throat> and you better believe that God was super ticked about it. But I like how he's bringing up this boy in the midst of all of that. And he's going to change it. He is going to change it. And God is not happy about what's going on here. We learned that Mary plagiarized. Ah, that's great. <laughs> she didn't come up with that on her own. You have to know that yep. Mary knew from yes. the teachings what this Hannah's prayer was. Hmm? Eli's sons were doing corruption too, weren't they? No, that's who was. Yeah, that was Eli's sons. Eli. Yep. <coughs> but like in verse 25, <coughs> It says you know, Eli tries to instruct him, yeah. the, the sons, and they don't listen. But it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So like that's another kind of uh, mm -hmm. you know, this was all a part of God's plan. Yeah, to, uh, I don't know. It's that's a good one too. And and you know, making the point here, like what what Steve was saying about uh, Mary taking the the prayer of Hannah, um, verse twenty six, and the boy so-and-so, continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and with men. Who does that sound like in the New Testament? It's like that's right out of Matthew, doesn't it's it? It's Luke. In it fact, Luke yeah. also records the prayer of Mary. So Luke <laughs> is recording two things now that tie Jesus back to Samuel. It's very interesting. <clears throat> so that tells you a lot about Jesus. That tells you a lot about Samuel. I like that he, it's not like he <clears throat> Hannah forgot Samuel either. Yeah. Every year she gave him a coat and brought it to him. I thought that was so cute. Old. I love that. You know. little coat. How did she measure it is my question. She like knew what size to make it without even seeing it. Oh, I don't know. It showed up on site with the materials. I don't know. But, um, verse 27. You get another really important thing here. Now, a what? Seems like an angel shows up. It's a good, it's a good point. Um, it actually turns out that this phrase, a man of God, comes to be referenced often to prophets in the Old Testament. So uh, read the prophet prophetic books. You will notice that this phrase, a man of God, often is referred to as a prophet who comes. And, and we know that, that prophetic uh, you know, activity was happening in this period. And as we'll find in verse 3, maybe a little less than usual. <clears throat> but there were still men of God who were rebuking the leadership of Israel for what was going on here. That's a big one, slap. So in like verse 30, when he's talking about, <clears throat> basically saying, you know, I promised that there would be um, head, you know, high priests from mm -hmm. the line of Aaron. And is he like breaking that now? <clears throat> that 
there's no longer a high priest in the line of Aaron? No, we know that that won't be true. Um, But I, I, you know, and and with what little time we have left, I think it it bears, you know, addressing. He says here, I promised such and such would happen, but now far be it from me that it's not going to happen. What does that tell you about what God decides to do? What does that say? This is a deep one. But it says the time is coming when I will destroy the descendants of both you and your ancestors. Mm -hmm. So of Eli, yeah. The house of Eli. Okay. Not the house of Aaron. Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Remember Aaron's way back. Right, right. One is Levi, one is Zadok. And as we'll see in the Davidic line, David is going to say it's not just any Levite, it's a Zadokite that has to be the high priest. And guess how long that lasts? That lasts until the exile. And after that, there is no Zadokite priest that's the high priest anymore. And guess how great things go for the Jews after that? Okay. Abiathar is probably the one who is spared. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar, one will not be cut off. We think later, in fact, no, that is a high priest named Abiathar who will rule as a co-high priest with Zadok during the time of David. He will go to David in his cave while David is hiding out from Saul. He flees the massacre that Saul does to the priestly class in Nob, and he lives. And so that is fulfilled. That is prophecy that is fulfilled in about, I don't know, 20 years' time, 20 to 30 years' time from now. There's a lot of stuff here, folks, and I do want to call again back to verse uh, 10. is the end of her prayer. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, Mishayak. First reference of Mishayak in the Old Testament to a king. Remember, in Leviticus, anointed tended to always, and I think there's four times this is mentioned, anointed one tended to be talking about an anointed priest. Remember, you had to be an anointed priest, too. I mean, getting picked isn't just, you just, you know, someone votes. Had to be anointed the author of Samuel is now shifting that. It's shifting the idea that now you're not being ruled kind of by a priest. You're being going to be ruled by a king. That is the person who's going to be anointed. All right. Any other? These first ones, I always talk a lot. Probably next week you guys will get a lot more to say. So what other final comments or questions do you have? Somewhere in the Bible it says... God would rather we obeyed and sacrifice. Rather have us to obey than give sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like this clarification when you were talking was him saying, you guys are going to try to say I broke my promise or I broke my, but this is why I'm not. This is how I'm Mm -hmm. not breaking. My Mm -hmm. word is my word. Mm -hmm. You've now cut yourself off. Mm -hmm. Like he's saying, my word is my word, and I said this and I mean it. But this is this is what's going to happen. This is this is exactly what happens to the people of Israel in their homeland. Remember, God said, "I will give you land for eternity." But if you screw things up enough, I'm going to take it away from you temporarily. We know that this will be given back to the chosen people at some point. And remember, you know, when the earth is is made new again, and God reigns in the New Jerusalem, we get it back. We, the Jews, we get it back. But temporarily, it might get taken away. And even the New Testament says that some of the blessings that have been that poured out into the God's chosen people will be taken away temporarily until the, until the Gentiles completely fulfill the mission of Christ. 
So I totally agree with that. So in one way, God will honor his promises. In another, he has the right to do caveats too, <laughs> based on our activity and what's best for us. Okay, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thank you.